0: Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chadwick. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle-Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes psychologist, professor, and author, Dr. Alan Shroof, to the show for part one of their two-part conversation about how we become the persons and people we are. Part two will be released on Tuesday, August 3rd.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm Karen Doyle-Buckwalter, joining you here from Shattuck for what I know is going to be an unforgettable interview today. So let me tell you a little bit about our guest, and I know his name is going to be familiar to many of you. Today, I will be interviewing Dr. Alan Sroufe. He is a former professor at the Institute of Child Development at the University of Minnesota. He received his PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Wisconsin. Dr. Sroof has been the Associate Editor of Developmental Psychology and Developmental Development and Psychopathology Journals, an internationally recognized expert on attachment relationships, emotional development, and developmental psychopathology. He has published numerous articles and books on these topics which include the development of a person, a two-time award winner, and recently released, which we're gonna talk to him about today at length in our interview, a book called A Compelling Idea. His other awards include Distinguished Scientific Contribution Award for the Society for Research in Child Development, the Bowlby Ainsworth Award for contributions to attachment research, the Mentor Award, and the G Stanley Hall Award for Distinguished Scientific Contribution to Developmental Psychology from Division Seven of the American Psychology Association. I could go on and on about additional awards this amazing man has won, but suffice it to say that he is one of the most prolific, respected researchers in the field of attachment and has an incredible longitudinal study that he will be referencing today. So stay tuned and Dr. Shroof will be coming right up. Good morning, Dr. Shroof. It's so good to have you here on the Attachment Theory and Action podcast. Welcome.
2: Happy to be here.
1: Great. Well, um, you are to us who love to study attachment theory and think about how it applies to our practice. a star a rock star to us so it's such an honor to be able to have you here to talk about your longitudinal study and your new book which everybody is called a compelling idea we'll make sure all of you know where to purchase that at the end of the podcast um but you could you share with listeners a little bit about why you thought you wanted to do a book like that because it's almost like part talking about your research in part memoir so it's a very unusual combination
2: that's true it is and um, it was an idea that struck me when I retired you know this study that we did at Minnesota that is still ongoing actually began in the 1970s And so we very intensively studied these 180 children from before they were born until they're now in their 40s. And we learned a lot about development. And we learned a lot about the role of attachment in development. And the study has been written up in countless journal articles and a couple of previous books, but usually in pretty technical form and emphasizing the methodology and the controls and all the things you need to do for scientific publication. Yes. And my first motivation for writing this particular book was to write a book that was brief, uh, clear, easy to read, and emphasized the lessons from our study. That was one motivation. And the motive to make it personal had to do partly with um, partly with making it a story about how even in science, which is supposed to be objective, your own personal life and experiences enter in. The questions you ask are yes. usually questions that you're interested in. Yes. And in my case, I was tremendously interested in understanding. Uh, why my parents had the problems they did why I had the problems I did why despite my parents problems they did as well as they did as parents Yes. and despite my problems I wound up having a pretty happy life and so that was part of it it was uh, to tell a personal story about science and discovery and then there was another reason for being so revealing and that is when you write about cases that you study you necessarily obscure details yes uh, you alter insignificant aspects to camouflage the Mm -hmm. identity of the people that's required i didn't have to do that about myself Uh And um, one thing um, you will discover as you get older, you have less and less of an issue of protecting your ego. Things don't, you're not so embarrassed by things anymore. You understand, hey, it's just a life. I have my problems. You have your problems. We're all struggling along. So I felt very comfortable with doing that. I of course had to ask my brother and sister if they and our children yes. if they agreed to me revealing these things and they did and so that was the reason and of course it made it a very enjoyable book to write
1: yes
2: i was so interested in thinking this through and amazingly i learned an awful lot writing this book I had insights that I never had previously had. And I remember toward the end of the book, and I I say this in there, I read a quote by Bowlby that I had read before years ago. Yes. But it had never struck me at the time. And the quote had to do uh, with uh, how the unconscious works and about how secrets work and about how sometimes parents do things for reasons that are obscure to the child, and yet they can be understood. I I, I could look up the quote, but the right. fact was, I realized all of a sudden, oh my gosh, that was exactly what happened to me. My mother in her fear of anger and her ways of expressing her anger at me when on the rare occasion she did what that was concealing both from herself which she couldn't look at uh-huh. and from me and it was just stunning to read something where it was like bobby had done my case history and analyzed me for 20 years and this was his summary of my problem and I was like, holy cow <laughs> And it's it's so interesting that you can read something and not get it at one point in your life and read the same thing later and suddenly see its full meaning.
1: That's so wonderful because it's almost like your professional life is also an evolution of yourself as a person. Like it kind of, you know, cause this book is written sort of chronologically at spaces throughout the study and the different ages that you study kids. And what you're saying is, you know, you became more aware of things about yourself and even um, later in adulthood, you know, I think of the study being called I want to share get the name of your famous study? I have to when we're here talking together. Well, you have many, but the Minnesota the Study of Risk and Adaptation from Birth to Adulthood. And as you're talking, I'm thinking, including later adulthood.
2: <laughs> it, it was uh, an amazing journey. It, you know, actually, you you point to a really important parallel one of the things that i've believed theoretically and that's been a guide is that development has a certain nature development works a certain way yes and that's regardless of what you're talking about the development of the brain the development of the universe the development of of personality and one's individual development always development works in the same way so in telling the story of our studies evolution in telling the story of how the children we studied grew up and changed and evolved and became the people they were. And in telling my story, it's the same, it's the same story. It's always the same thing. The major lesson being that development always builds upon itself. It always builds upon what's there before. And change is always possible. But even with change, prior development is still there. That's the way it works. That's the way it works for all of us.
1: Yes, yes. Well, um, one of the things that really jumped out at me, among the many things with the book, but... I think, as somebody who is a clinician, um, reading research and looking at research, much of what we look at and think about through a clinical lens is just, <clears throat> you know, what are they finding out today that I can apply to clients I work with? And not a lot of the research is longitudinal studies like yours. I mean that's a life that's a life's career and and so much devotion and money and I remember as I was reading the book thinking I can't believe that at every stage you had to come up with all of these different measures and ways to assess this. Like, you know, as a clinician, I'm like, okay, we start with a basque before treatment, we end with a basque after treatment. Like I am thinking like basic outcome measures. You know, that's kind of how mine works. Or you 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 do a UCLA trauma index and you know, maybe you 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 repeat something to see reduced symptomology. And I'm reading this book and and I'm I'm recognizing Oh my I had just had this light bulb go off, which is very basic for you. I know as, as somebody been around and who, who has been around research being like at every stage you guys are like scrambling, like what can we measure? How can we look at this? I'm just like, I guess I didn't realize the pressure also to the scientist of a study like this. I had this idea in my mind that you kind of knew all the way through the measures you were going to use when you started. <laughs> that that, yeah. that fascinated me what was it like to be under this almost like a time gun to come up with what are we going to do next
2: yeah. yeah well it was exciting it was exhausting <laughs> it, it was uh, fascinating it was challenging and you know there there were times when uh, and I, I do uh, I do explain how when i was having my greatest period of personal difficulties how the stresses of the study didn't help yes and it was that's when it
1: really uh, came alive to me
2: (laughs) it it was it, it was challenging but you know the reason the study worked and the reason previous longitudinal studies hadn't i mean this is not something people hardly know anymore but the longitudinal studies that were done in the 60s and so forth showed no continuity. Well, it was because they tried to measure the same thing over time. And you can't- Like
1: what I was thinking that you do.
2: Like, you can't measure the aggressiveness of babies to predict later conduct problems. Babies don't have the capacity to be hostily aggressive. Right. And if you measure dependency in babies, guess what, they're all dependent. So that's not a very good way of predicting over-dependency later. So you have to think about, and, you know, there were others who had this idea and we borrowed it. You look at what are the salient issues going on at each age. You have to start there. Yes. What's the four-year-old child negotiating in his life?
1: Mm -hmm.
2: You know, trying to enter the peer group, trying to, learn how to interact with other kids who are equally incompetent yes those are those are the salient issues learning how to control himself when an adult isn't there to enforce it right age by age 10 year old kids they're learning to have loyal friendships adolescents holy cow what they're what they're dealing with I know you know adolescents well, and it's amazing the coordination that has to happen. Friendships with same-gender peers, friendship with opposite-gender peers, intimate relationships, small groups, large groups coordinating all of it, finding your place in all of this complex world. Well, if you want to look at continuity and change and development, you have to measure those things. Yes. We, we you know, for example, finding that the uh, school age children who maintain gender boundaries, which is a common thing for young kids to do, you know, boy germs, cooties, and yes. ooh, he's with the girls, or yes. she likes him and tease each other and all this stuff. The kids who maintain those boundaries are more facile with the complex issues of adolescence. Yeah. Who, who would have predicted that? The kids who maintain those boundaries don't stay away from the other gender in adolescence. Right. It's preparation for it because you're working on things like loyalty and trust in a simpler way than you'll have to do later. Yes. And so it goes. Yeah. One of, uh, one of my favorite... Uh, things from our more recent data, which I don't know if it's even in my book, because it's more recent. When we look at uh, adult couples and their ability to resolve conflicts. Yes. Yeah, attachment enters into that. But my point here is that one thing that's a strong predictor is competent peer relationships in middle childhood. Because there's where you learn the give and take of conflict resolution is in childhood with Uh, peers. You can't learn conflict resolution solely with your parents. Right. Because it's an asymmetrical relationship. Yes. So if you want to understand adult relationships, you look at peer relationships earlier, but in a particular way, you don't look at, uh, you know, which eight-year-olds are in a romantic relationship. That is not going to predict quality of romantic relationships later. That's going to predict some weird things later. Yes, that, that is not what's going on when you're eight years old. Right.
1: So. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So for some listeners that may not be as familiar with your study, could you – Step, step back big picture for a minute, and maybe we'll give them context what the overall study was. You know, what, what this was meant to look at, um, and I'm sure that evolved, <laughs> but you know, what you originally set out to do with this.
2: Well, um, it looks more coherent in retrospect. <laughs> because originally of course we were not planning to do a study for 40 years we were planning to do a study for two or three years when we started but it was so interesting that each step that we couldn't stop eventually we knew we were going to go a long ways but but there were certain ingredients right from the beginning first of all it was a sample uh where the infants were born in moderate poverty I say moderate poverty because Minneapolis in the mid 1970s was not the same as some uh, Eastern cities where there was hardcore multi-generational poverty. And nor was it a very diverse city, although now it's completely diverse. And now we've caught up with the rest of the world. We have some hardcore poverty here also. But so we, we did that on purpose one reason being we knew that poverty and the things associated with it uh, all the associated stresses the family instability and other things would make it likely that a number of these children would develop to have problems Yes. now you know you you hate to want you don't want that for anybody but you know empirically more children born into poverty will have developmental difficulties. And as it worked out, it wound up being about half the children we studied had notable problems and half didn't, which from a research point of view was uh, useful. We started before they were born. That was important for several reasons. We wanted to measure parent attitudes and expectations. These were all firstborns, yeah. Originally. Oh, okay. We wound up studying siblings too, but okay. we started with firstborns. So you have a parent who does not have a child. And so their expectations and viewpoints about childbearing are drawn from their own history and experience, not reacting to the child. Yes. Because sometimes people will say, uh, well, the parent is. Uh, Hostile towards that child because they got a bad child, or they uh, they uh, they see their child as um, incorrigible because that's the way the child was. So we started we started before the child was born. We measured lots of things uh, prenatally and around birth and in the first months. That was very important <clears throat> because. If you're doing a developmental study and you have the view we do that everything builds on the foundation that was there before, you have to start early. In our view, by the time a child is three years old or 10, when lots of studies start, an awful lot of development has happened.
1: Right. You're not, from your perspective, you're not considering that early.
2: No. If you, if you uh, for example, if you start your study at age three and you measure temperament, you think you're measuring something inborn in the child. And uh-huh. studies are written up that way. I've seen studies of adolescents where they started at age 15 and they measured temperament and they measure behavior problems. And they say the temperament caused the behavior problems. Uh-huh. But you have no clue. And even, even if... Um, you're studying ADHD and you do brain scans of teenagers and you find that they have a, a some difference in their frontal lobe. And you say the difference in their frontal lobe caused their ADHD. You don't know that. Where'd the difference in their frontal lobe come from? The brain develops too. Yes. So we started before birth and we started measuring uh, newborn neurology, uh, early temperament, all along. That way, we could answer questions like, did the child's temperament influence the parenting and in, in what ways? Did the child's temperament predict the attachment or did what the child experienced from the parent predict the attachment? We could look at those things. Yes. That, was, that was an important part of the study. We, we did direct observations of the infant 11 times by the time they were 18 months old.
1: I remember first reading some of this and just being so surprised. You had nurses in the hospital, right? Did, w- yep. weren't there some people caring for the babies? Like very early, like.
2: That- this was, this was you, you know, in modern times, you probably go home the day you deliver. Yes. They probably call the cab when you go in the delivery room. <laughs> But in the mid 1970s, mothers would stay in the hospital three or four days after the baby was born. So you had all these nurses that saw the babies in the nursery and you could get ratings from them over and over and over. And you could also get rating. The one thing that came out of that was the nurses ratings of the mother's interest in the baby predicted subsequent development.
1: It's just amazing to me that you thought to measure all these things. Um, I think it's really important to mention that you were trained as a behaviorist.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I keep wondering to myself if because of that, and, and maybe you still had some of those views when the study started, I, I don't know, but I keep wondering if you kind of knew because of your training as a behaviorist, what a lot of the arguments against some of this would be and where were you trying to use measure, measures that would uh, prove or disprove them? Do you understand what I'm asking? Am I making sense?
2: Well, yes, it's definitely true. We, we uh, um, I do not regret my behaviorist training. I mean, one thing about behaviorism is it gets you looking at behaviors. Yes. <laughs> but it's not an adequate explanation of development. Behaviorism is not a developmental theory at all. And uh, I had done studies before this study of infant emotional development. And babies smile, smiling and laughter has nothing to do with reinforcement. You know, newborn babies smile when they're asleep. It has nothing to do with reinforcement. And babies will smile at a spinning mobile. There's nobody, nobody has to do that. Toddlers will chatter when they wake up without a parent coming in and saying, good boy, you're talking, good boy, good boy. No, they just do it, but Some of this was, it was theoretically driven. We knew we had to measure certain things. We actually expected much more impact of the child's temperament on the quality of care than we found. We thought there'd be this match-mismatch deal. You know, you have a parent that wants a really low-key baby, and they have a baby that's pretty active, and so it's hard for them. We thought there'd be a lot of that. We didn't find very much of that. We found that um, mostly uh, what what sensitive parenting is, is adjusting your behavior to the baby. And we found that's what would predict outcome, not what the baby's style was. Yes. The parent's sensitivity in responding to that particular style. That's what predict predicts secure attachment and other positive outcomes
1: well i love in the book when you say that um having your daughter toppled your behaviorist ideas
2: <laughs> well yeah I, I mean anybody that watches a baby develop knows that it doesn't have much to do with reinforcement
1: yes yes huh. and it has
2: to do with it has to do with having fun with the baby and um and being responsive to them, yes yeah the the uh let me say one other thing about the study. yes, um there was another couple of features that were important, in addition to measuring the early temperament and early parenting, we needed to measure uh the context in which the families were raising the children, so we always had measures of the stress the families were experiencing. And we always had measures of their social support and those two things were very important and that was important to us for two reasons number one it immediately removed any tendency to be blaming parents which attachment theorists are often accused of yes especially mothers yes this is mother bashing no number one anytime we took into account the stress the mother was under and the support available to her we could account for the baby's anxious attachment. I mean, of course what parents do matters. Yes. Obviously that's what infants experience. The infants don't experience your social support system, but you do. Yeah. And your social support system allows you to be emotionally available to the baby. So it's our responsibility as a society that there's so much anxious attachment. It's not the responsibility of these individual mothers. They need a lot more support than our society gives them. So that was one thing. And the other thing was we were interested in change. So we could look at babies who were anxiously attached, and then some of them are securely attached the next time we measured. Yes. How did that happen? Well, because those families, the stress went down. Yes and the same way with social support it worked the other way but social social support went up behavior problems went down Yes. so we we measured that all along and we could track the rises and fallings of children's developmental problems based on the supports and stress the family was dealing with
1: Yes, I have a lot of questions about that part of the study. um, And I'm going to look forward to asking you them in part two of this interview. So listeners, um, we're going to say goodbye. Thank you for joining us for part one of this interview with Dr. Alan Stroof, And I hope you will join us next week for part two.
0: Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.